I demanded the immediate emancipation of all Africans in the colonies. Didn't, of course, happen. Pity. Oh, America. What was it you did not understand about slavery? Could we not have saved some suffering for our United States? Or as someone would come to say, what would have happened when Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death, if one of his slaves had stood up and said, me too? <laughs> I would not live to see the end of this ungodly practice. continuing our uh, three-part series, maybe four-part series, with uh, a great uh, guest, and that would be Professor Harvey Kay, who is a historian and historian, uh, really specializing uh, on the Revolutionary War period that we're interested in at this week, uh, going into the uh, 4th of July, uh, and the unsung hero, Thomas Paine. The name of his book that I read 15 years ago, which you have to get, is called Thomas Paine or Tom Paine, uh, Promise of America. You've got to read this book. And he's such a great storyteller. He's a professor at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, and he's written tons of books. Uh, just look him up, uh, Harvey J.K. Uh, he's a real treat. We're going to go right into it. Uh, right after this uh, little uh, tune called um, Tom Payne's Bones. We'll be right back with the very, very colorful uh, Harvey J. King. I went out late one night by a river of discontent. I ran straight into old Tom Payne, running down the road he went. He said, I can't stop right now, child. King George is after me and he'd have a rope around my throat Hand me from the liberty tree Oh, I'd dance to Tom Payne's bones Dance to Tom Payne's bones Dance in the oldest boots I own To the rhythm of Tom Payne's bones Dance to Tom Payne's bones Dance to Tom Payne's bones Dance in the oldest boots I own To the rhythm of Tom Payne's bones Talked about freedom and justice for everyone, but since the very first word I spoke, I've been staring down the barrel of a gun. They said I preached revolution. seem to uh, like that tune and uh, we're going to have uh, another version later on uh, by Laurent, I believe, uh, Tom Payne's Bones. Uh, as um, I said in the preamble, uh, we are continuing our discussion with Harvey K. 
on the life and times of the great American revolutionary journalist, Tom Paine. And um, nice to have you back. I really enjoyed the other day, but uh, it went by so quickly, uh, Professor. So quickly, right? It <laughs> and did. We, and we've, all, <clears throat> we've only reached, uh, what, 17, se spring of 76. That's right. We were right there, spring of seven, 1776. Um, and it's actually before um, the Declaration of Independence. Right. Uh, right? Right. So that's where we were. 500,000 copies were sold. Uh, it created a stir, a controversy, uh, anger, joy, and uh, everybody read it, uh, you know, 500,000 over the course of its time, but uh, 100,000 in the beginning. So uh, I don't know exactly where we left it. I don't want to have to look at it again, but we were talking about its impact and Adams. Wait a minute, how could you, wait, wait, whoa, you can't say that. You can't say you don't want to look at it again. I just I'm going to look at it again, but not right now. But I no, think we I were talking about Abigail Adams <laughs> and, and, and uh, the ladies, right. uh, and that's where we left it. Uh, John Adams and uh, a few that would uh, cement at that point forward. If I'm not right. correct. Yeah. Yeah. What's it, it, interesting is I think there were about 2,000 published in the first printing in the first couple of weeks, and they sold out almost immediately. And then in the course of that spring, about 120,000 copies were, were said to have been sold. And that doesn't include all of the newspapers that excerpted Common Sense. Now, it's worth noting what Common Sense did because when you go to school and you read the history textbooks, Usually they'll devote maybe a few lines to Thomas Paine before the Declaration of Independence. And what they will tell you is that Thomas Paine was the first real call, in fact, it may have been the very first public call for independence. But actually, it's far more significant than that. Because when Thomas Paine writes Common Sense, and it, it's published as basically a f not even more than 50-page pamphlet, when he writes it, he doesn't even mention the, the question of independence or separating from Britain until quite a ways into the pamphlet. He opens up with a sort of a sense of Americans' democracy, of the fact that if you start out as an isolated group of people removed from what he calls civilization, then he says certain kinds of, if I'm paraphrasing, human instincts emerge. So he lays out a, a little tale of people who naturally, by way of their own sociability, reach out to each other in order to create a community. But even more significant than that idea of sociability, which is fundamental, is also the fact that he lays out a kind of tale of how they organize themselves as their numbers grow. And what he says is that they, they meet, the community meets under the limbs and, and, and the branches and the leaves of a vast oak tree. And what he, the image he gives is that of a community which is fundamentally democratic. That is, that people associate with each other and deliberate together to work out the rules and regulations that will govern them. Now, it's interesting because First of all, it's different, say, than the classical version of these sort of isolated communities that end up choosing a leader and eventually a king. This is the idea 
that fundamentally people are capable at, from the beginning of organizing themselves in a democratic fashion. The other thing is that it appeals to Americans because it provides them with a sort of, you like almost mythical image of themselves of having come to North America and having separated themselves in many ways from civilization. But here's the other thing. When Paine arrived in America in the, at the end of 1774, as he came to know America in early 1775, he was astounded to find that Americans had basically thrown out British authority and had organized committees in towns and cities to govern themselves. So in a way, this story he tells at the beginning of Common Sense, this democratic, small d democratic story, is meant to be not only a reflection of a kind of mythical past, but it's also meant to be a reflection of what Americans themselves at that time, on a grander scale, are doing, okay? So he opens up common sense with an argument for democracy and the possibility of recovering democracy because as he sees it and as he explains, the British government with its monarchy and its aristocracy and its commons in the parliament, the House of Lords and the House of Commons and the king who has a sort of uh, ultimate authority. This he says is an imposition on humanity. It's an imposition on the British people. So before he ever goes anywhere near the question of democracy, Paine is arguing for democracy as a fundamentally more humane and more progressive form of political organization than any of the kingdoms and, 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 and you know, ruling class arrangements that Europe or the rest of the world have. So democracy first, and then he goes on to talk about how kings bring war, how empires bring war, and that if Americans think about it, they don't need the kings and they don't need the empire. And in fact, they're not even British as they've been imagining themselves. They are fundamentally American. And that is well, the- Wait a second, what, what, what separated them from, let's say, um, those in uh, India? Uh, that lived in India under British rule. Well, the differences yeah. in, in well, rights. Yeah. As, as Britain would come to rule India as it would rule any of the parts of the world that, that were people of color, we might say, they operated, they operated as an empire, a colonial empire, okay, with military occupation or they created a military wherever they were. In America, they had already afforded Americans by way of Americans' own initiatives, but also perhaps because they viewed themselves, they viewed these colonists as British at the outset, which they were, or diversely European. And the Americans themselves, however much they were diverse and however much you know, they came from various places in the world, they thought of themselves as British. But now Paine is showing them they don't need a king, they don't need an empire. And in fact, the British, the English constitution and the British government are corrupt and a threat to their very liberties. Whereas Americans wanted the rights of British, which because they thought of themselves as British, they had come from the old world. Paine was saying, forget it. You have an opportunity to turn, well, basically to start the world over again. You have the opportunity of creating a democratic republic. And he actually lays out a charter, he calls it a charter, but it's really a constitution, a highly democratic constitution, not one that's given by the king 
or parliament, but rather one that will emanate from the people. And he also builds into his idea of a constitution, this is really important, the idea of rights. So what we would later call a bill of rights, or they would later call a bill of rights, he says this must be built right into the constitution. And the one he really does emphasize, well, there are two, one security of one's home and property, but the other one, which is the most, a really revolutionary argument for the late 18th century, is he talks about freedom of conscience or freedom of worship, freedom of religion. And I think it's about three to five times in the course of the pamphlet, he emphasizes the imperative that in the new nation that will be the United States, he doesn't use the term United States just yet, that separation of church and state are the best guarantee of freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. And he actually has a great line in Common Sense where he says, the only role for government in religion is to make sure everyone gets to practice it as they please. Really revolutionary statement, by the way. And that's one of the things that if Thomas Paine had really written the Declaration, I think I said this the other, in the other episode we did, is that if he had written the Declaration of Independence, I am sure he would have built in an argument for separation of church and state, which he does in common sense. He also explores uh, that much later on in, in uh, 19, uh, 1793, 94, in the second half uh, of Rights of Man about the separation of church and state, I believe. Um, well, that, that's, in the, that's in another pamphlet where, he, no. where it's called, it's called, it's a two-part pamphlet. Age of Reason. I meant the Age of Reason. Excuse right. me. I meant the Age of Reason. There, all right. All right. Rights of Man, he talks more about, uh, ex, ex, expounds on rights of individuals to have uh, uh, guaranteed income, uh, social security. Uh, right. That's Rights of Man. Well, we'll get to that later yeah. on, maybe not on this program. I want to go back to, in common sense, it's a screed also, and he had firsthand experience uh, on a grassroots level of the kind of uh, system uh, that was operating in England, at that, uh, or in the right, UK, right. I suppose, at right. that time. Well, he came over, and he was already almost middle age, as we would say, you know, middle age. Right. So, but, but, so, but he had seen it. He grew up, he really had a disdain for the uh, capricious uh, form of, uh, of uh, capital punishment. Can you go into how that system worked in England? Yeah, well, this goes, the 18th century, there had been a whole series of laws that were enacted that were directed as much against crimes of property as anything else. So that if you were, they were called the Black Acts in the 18th century. And it had to do with the idea of protecting the king, the royal property, protecting the royal, you know, herds of deer. Um, if you were to steal somebody's property, I mean, it was really directed at crimes of property. So in addition to the question of murder, okay, killing someone else, you might end up forfeiting your own life. It was also the idea that if you committed certain kinds of acts, against royal property, or for that matter, property generally, you could be tried and subject possibly to capital punishment. They might think they were being kind to you if they put you on a ship and sent you off to Australia, okay, Where, which was a prison colony. But so, it didn't matter the age, though. Let me, let me, it didn't matter the age. I mean, uh, I read in there, in fact, you write about it, uh, the age of an individual, if they uh, were caught uh, you know, stealing property, 
uh, they could be 10 years old, 12 years old, could be a woman that were subjected to pot potentially capital punishment. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about ultimately the judge's decision. But here's the thing, Payne, where he grew, where he grew up, Thetford, England, which is in Norfolk over, over in England, the town itself was the site of an annual set of, of, of trials. And at these trials, these were often capital, you know, capital trials. So that in fact, there was a gallows hill in Thetford where, and, and it said that from Payne's front step, from his parents' front yard or front, they didn't have a yard or front steps, you could actually see gallows hill. So from, an, from his earliest years as a child, Payne had this grisly image, you might say, of, of, of gallows and hangings. And by the way, in a, talking about grisly, I mean, it was the kind of thing where when this court arrived in the town and pursued its uh, deliberations, this was like a festival time. You know, people just turned out. But for Payne, this was just a terrible, terrible kind of thing to witness as a child. And he always actually did oppose capital punishment. Even for King Louis the Sixteenth, right? In later in the seventeen in seventeen nineties, when he's in France and he's a prominent figure, a member of the National Assembly and the constituent, anyhow, the, the the new National Parliament of France, when they decide that the king has committed treason, he is determined to vote, and he does vote no on the capital punishment question, on the execution of the king and his family. I mean, he we're, votes we're, guilty, we're, though. We're jumping ahead, but, I, but it's worth noting. This is important because Payne Pain did not oppose violence in the safe for the sake of liberty. What he did oppose was capital punishment. Right. And, and when he opposed the hanging, well, sorry, the, the guillotine, sorry, of the king and his family, this made him terrible enemies within the revolutionary elite. Right. Robespierre. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we are jumping ahead. But so it, going back to common sense, uh, he also lays out uh, his uh, disdain for uh, just the hereditary rights uh, of the monarchy going well, all the way back. Kings are bad enough. Kings are bad enough. And then we compounded, he says, with hereditary succession. I mean, in other words, the kings, their sons and their grandsons, it's a lineage. And, and he says, look, what do these kings bring? They bring war. They bring war with other kingdoms and they bring war within, Brit within Britain, within England itself, as the various dynastic families go to war with each other for who should serve, you know, who, who would gain access to the kingdom, who would become the next royal, the royal figure, who would wear the crown. I mean, he, he just despises the idea of, of kings. He uses a whole variety of means to belittle them. He refers to the Bible that the Jews were, had no king and, and when they demanded one, that in fact the, the prophet said, what are you kidding? You don't want a king. God doesn't want you to have a king. He uses history laying out the, the story of English kings and how bloody it was. And when not bloody, it was utterly ridiculous, he, he says. Not to mention the current kings in England were all rooted in the Norman conquest, you might right. say. And the Norman Conquest, he says, he actually says this, this royal bastard and his bandits come over from Normandy to conquer England, you know, Alfred and, and, and all of that. So over and over again, he uses history, he uses reason, he uses humor, he, he, he uses the Bible to challenge the, 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 if you like, the 
the imperative of a, of a royal. He challenges the very idea of a royal. He belittles the idea of, of kings. Well, let me ask you this. Um, so he has his firsthand knowledge. He'd been there for a long period of time. How he many got fired by the, He got fired by the crown for having organi help organize and represent the excise officers right. in their petition. So, so, but all of the other founding fathers at that period of time, they had already been here for at least one generation. They really did, they knew about taxation, they knew about, um, you know, taxes here, uh, they knew about- Yeah, those, we're talking now, of course, the declaration generation. Not right, that one, yes. Right, the yes. Those yeah. people did not have the vision or the knowledge that Payne had. And well, actually, they, they didn't have the direct knowledge, sorry, the direct experience, but they too had serious questions about the idea of kings. But they weren't going to talk, remember, if you belittled the king, you were, you were basically a, tre a traitor. Payne was really going out on, what do they say, going out on a limb when he did this. And I, we already said this, told the story of Benjamin Rush, who said to Payne, you should write this pamphlet. And Payne said, well, why don't you do it? He goes, well, I have too much to lose. Right. Okay. So, so he was the Cyrano. By the way, somebody else who, who really did resent Britain, but was by no means prepared to, to, to declare independence, was George Washington. He had been insulted many times by the British army, the king's army, because they failed to give him a commission in the king's army. He had only ever been a colonial army officer, a Virginia officer. So, right. pay, so, so what's interesting is, Washington is already in the field with an army when Payne is writing this. And I think you mentioned this last time, even though his army is in the field, even though Washington is leading an army up in New England against the King's army, whenever he and his officers meet for dinner, the first thing they did was they toasted the King. Right. As a sign of their loyalty. They were loyal to the, to the monarch and to the idea of, of the British Empire. What they were opposed to was Parliament's efforts to subject them to the, to the rules and regulations that they had no share in deliberating and deciding upon. What, what kind of um, influence did common sense have on, on, the, uh, on the military, on, on the Continental Army at that period of time? Just the great question, and here's why. Since the likes of Washington never spoke out, even though they were rebels, they had never spoken of what the rebellion was about, possibly. They never argued for, called for independence, of, for separation. And Washington himself never moves, never says anything of that sort until his own men have read Common Sense. And he actually says in a letter, again, a, this is to, I think, one of his, uh, one of his aides, he says, common sense is working a wondrous change in the minds of, my, of the men. In other words, this is the moment where Washington, propelled by his own soldiers, is, has come out in favor of the cause of independence. And, and at that time, uh, I don't know when exactly uh, Payne uh, actually uh, becomes an adjutant later on in 1776. Right. So, Here's what happens. Common sense truly changes the entire rhetoric of the rebellion. Communities from New England to the South start sending letters and petitions 
to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, calling for independence. In other words, it's a popular demand. And in Congress, those folks would never have acted, never have acted, had it not been for the popular clamor. And they then decide to start moving in favor of independence. So over the course of weeks, they, they ask the colonial uh, governments to organize their governments anew. And then by July 2nd, they are, in, are they are prepared to start signing a declaration of independence. The official date becomes, of course, July 4th. When, when that independence is declared, Payne joins a Philadelphia militia. It's called the Flying Squadron. They, they couldn't fly, obviously. But they would move swiftly towards New York, and they would take up camp as part of the American forces around New York City, awaiting the arrival of what would be a new British army on a, on a vast British fleet. What happens is they wait and wait and wait. And when the British fleet arrives, I mean, it's, it's got 32,000 British soldiers on board these ships who are going to disembark in New York Harbor. This Philadelphia flying squadron, they decide this is hopeless. They up and head back to Philadelphia, but not Payne. He goes from an area sort of Bayonne, New Jersey, you know, just across from Staten Island, and he heads up to Fort Lee, where Nathaniel Green, one of Washington's best generals, is located. And by this time, when he introduces himself as Thomas Paine, Green, of course, welcomes him and makes him his aide, his adjutant. Why? Well, not only because Paine has got this great pen. I mean, he's got this, this is the pen that created or turned the rebellion into a revolution. But for another reason, like Payne, Nathaniel Green was raised by a Quaker parent, by Quaker parent. Well, Payne's father was a Quaker. Green's parents were Quaker. And here was Nathaniel Green deciding that the revolution was worth fighting, even though he was a Quaker, who were indeed pacifists. And he and Payne become very close. And there in Fort Lee, I don't know if most people who hear this may not know Fort Lee, New Jersey, but it's right, it's the Jersey side of the George Washington right, Bridge. Right, right. I know it very well. It's up on the Palisades, as right. you know. Right, right. I drive by it every time I go up north, right up the right. Palisades. So from there, Payne can look out across the river and see the battles underway in Manhattan. And by this time, Washington is really taking a beating. And it's clear that, that Washington is likely going to retreat and come across the river and come up at Closter Dock, which is north of, of uh, Fort Lee. And indeed, they come down, Washington's army does just that. And Nathaniel Green and Washington combine their forces in Fort Lee. And this is where Washington and Payne first meet. And then there's a famous retreat from Fort Lee across what we think of today as a Bergen County. And then they head south. They cross the Hackensack River and they head south towards what would be Newark and Elizabeth. Along the way, and keep in mind that Payne is in the headquarters that Washington and, and Green have established. Payne is in conversation with Washington and Green, and Washington just adores Payne because he was the man who put his pen to work in calling for a revolution. He knows common sense. And basically, it's either Green or Washington who says to Payne, It's time to take up your pen again. We need your words again. Before this, Payne was still writing, but he was basically writing 
sort of journalism that he was sending back to Philadelphia reporting on, on the war. Now Payne's, you know, goes out into the, into the camp and it's said on the head of a drum by a campfire, he begins to write. And the opening words of the first crisis paper are some of the most famous words in all of American history. These are the times that try men's souls. Okay. Right. And, and by the way, if you Google that with those words, these are the times that try men's souls, you'll not only get the historical reference to them, you will also discover how many folks since then have been citing it and quoting it, including the losing team's coaches at halftime in just about every sport. And that's also where uh, Winter Soldier versus Summer Soldier comes in. That's right, right, which of course will come up much later, once again in American history, during the late, later years of the Vietnam War, the Winter Soldiers movement, which was a veterans movement against the war in Vietnam, that in fact John Kerry became the spokesperson for. I see. So, um, so now we're going towards the end of 1776. Washington well, they've retreated a lot of trouble. Jersey. Washington's in a lot of trouble. Uh, The retreat is awful. Now, where where does Payne finish uh, American Crisis number one? Does he finish it? We don't know where. It's possible that what he's done is he's drafting it along the way. He requests permission from either Washington or Green to leave the army and go to Philadelphia ahead of them by horse. Now, I'll just point out that um, Washington around this time had written to a cousin. I believe it was a cousin, and says to him, if we get hit one more time by the British Army, it's all over. The revolution is over if that happens. And fortunately, Howe was moving too slowly. He didn't strike Washington's army again, or it would have been all over. Because along the way in the retreat across New Jersey, the first thing to know is that the militiamen, as opposed to the regular American army, the militiamen were basically, they were leaving. They figured their enlistment was over. They're going home to their families and their farms. So by the time they reach the Delaware River and cross over to Pennsylvania, there's not a hell of a lot left of the army, okay? Now Payne, meanwhile, has headed to Philadelphia to finish the pamphlet and get it published, printed, let's put it that way. It gets printed within within days of Christmas and immediately placed Vast, I don't know the number of copies. It's sent up to Washington and his army on the Del- along the Delaware River. It's not that far north of Philadelphia, but that would be not far north in a car by cat by wagon. It's a bit of a bit of a trip. When Washington reads this, he is so thrilled by the words, he distributes it to his officers and says to his officers, "Before we embark to cross the Delaware to attack the Hessians, these German mercenary troops." over in New Jersey in Trenton, read these words to your men before they get in the boats. So that's, we, that's not an apocryphal story. I mean, no, no, yeah. it absolutely definitely happened. Yeah. In fact, I'll go a step further. Uh, another historian, it wasn't my work that did this, another historian, well-known historian of the American Revolution, I think it was David Hackett Fisher, he is convinced that the only way that Washington even got the boats to the Delaware side of the river to cross back over to New Jersey is because the boatmen read common sense and realized they had to act as well. So they, they do arrive with the boats, the boats load, they go to Trenton and they win this pivotal battle, okay? They catch the Hessians by surprise. They're sleeping off a drunk from Christmas. 
and they win the Battle of Trenton, and then they go on to win the Battle of Princeton, which is to say to Americans, the revolution ain't over yet, okay? We will continue the fight. It ain't over till it's over, as uh, Mr., uh, what was the name of the baseball player? Yogi Berra would say. Yeah. So, so this, is, this goes into, after Christmas, and now seven, uh, 1777, right. um, you know, comes uh, and um, in, the, in the early months, he continues writing these crisis papers. Yeah, he will write. Oh, how many, 13 or 16? He write, here's interesting, you're right. He writes 13 official crisis papers, ones that bear numbers, because he wants one for each colony turned state, and one for each of the new states. He writes, I think two or three, he writes three others that he calls supplemental, because he doesn't want to run out of the numbers yet. So he does write a total of 16, but 13 bare numbers, one, two through 13. And this will be all through the course of the war. Whenever the war looked like the American, whenever it looked like the Americans might lose, or, or for example, when the Congress began to talk about removing Washington from command because he wasn't winning battles, Payne would write a pamphlet. In fact, one of the pamphlets, one of the early pamphlets is great, he actually writes it to, I think, to a British, like the head of the British army or, you know, he writes it in a way that says, you guys should give up now. And if you don't, I may actually write it, I may go back to England and write a pamphlet to, write, to, to rouse the British in a revolution. It's a very interesting kind of thing he does. I mean, it's, it's audacious, but it's his way of trying to instill in Americans and especially Washington's troops, the sense of possibility that this is not gonna be a quick war. We're gonna to have to fight this out. Last week, I believe you quoted the line of, uh, of Barlow, okay, who you first said Adams, but it was actually Barlow who said, without the sword of pain, Washington's, sorry, without the pen of pain, Washington's sword would have been wielded in vain. And Washington knew it. He knew that the entire war depended not only on his command of the army, but equally on Thomas Paine's pen. For the enthusiasm, did, did, did he acknowledge that personally? Uh, oh yeah, oh absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, they, they were close. <clears throat> and even during and after the war, they would meet. Even during and after the war, they, they would meet. There was no question. Later, just for the reference, in the 1790s, which I'm gonna tell, we'll tell a story maybe in the third episode of why Washington and Paine fall out but that's, I don't want to tell it now. Right, right. I'm not at that point in the book. I, you know, I'm almost there. But going back to, going back to the 1777, uh, Washington, his, his chief of staff is Hamilton. Uh, how did he and Payne get along? I have no idea. Nobody knows. I, I, I don't have, know. I've looked I mean, all over. I've never I'm been not able. I'm just not aware. Hamilton and Payne were not likely friends. Right. Okay. Not so, likely. So, so they, sh they had one thing in common. They were both immigrants. Right. And they both came from poor stock, but yeah. one like felt more comfortable with the gentry and the other one yeah. with the common. Well, of course, Hamilton had gone to law school. That's right. Yeah. So um, now we go into the middle of 1777. How does it unfold there? And uh, what, what is... becomes, it's interesting, John Adams, as much as he as much as he didn't care for Paine's revolutionary spirit, Adams, Adams was a smart guy. 
And, and Adams figured Payne's pen would do us well if we could bring him into our new government. The, the government that had, you know, the Continental Congress uh, was now the American Congress. And the, so Adams and others arranged for Payne to become the, the secretary of the Committee on Foreign Affairs. Yes. So that all the, all the correspondence and whatever that had to do with trying to raise money from France or possibly negotiate with other countries rec to, to recognize them, that was all funneled through Payne's office. And Payne was very good at it. However, however, something came up in the course of his time as the secretary to the committee that turned out to be a major, major embarrassment for the American government because Payne became a whistleblower. There, there were American representatives in Europe trying to raise funds to underwrite the war. And there was a man very greedy guy named Silas Dean. Dean was, was basically, when monies would be, would be handed over or supplies were going to be delivered, the French at the outset for, for quite some time did it without making it public, you might say. I mean, the British suspected it, but there was no formal announcement by the French that they were going to support the Americans. But what Dean was doing is that he was literally trying to make a profit on the on on securing the aid. So in other words, his own salary he thought was insufficient because he thought of himself as 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 needing more. And he would literally, you know, sort of what's that called? Embezzlement? I forget the term right now. Right, yes. He was pulling money out of the out crap. of the money's dedicated to the right. So right. here's what happens. Payne becomes aware of this because of the correspondence that he's responsible for, and he lets it be known that Dean is cheating the American government. Now, here's the thing. Dean was good friends with a lot of the very, the more conservative elite members of the Congress, like a man named Governor Morris, that, who we mentioned, I think, who was a merchant and a lawyer who traveled back and forth between New York and Philadelphia, okay? People like that, who already didn't care for Payne because he was a rather common person, but with a brilliant pen, who was calling for democracy, and that's the last thing these people wanted. I mean, in my book, I lay out the kinds of words folks like Governor Morris had for the ordinary farmer and, and artisan. So anyhow, they literally chastise Payne and he gets sacked, okay, he, he's gone. So he then has, once again, he's back, he has to fall back on his own resources, you might say. So now, so now he, he's got that position. Did he go to, uh, to France at that point in time? That's very late in the later. war. Very later late in the later. war. Right. What, he does, what he does is that he becomes more directly involved in the, in the Pennsylvania state government. And he's also active in, in helping organize and rallying the radicals and progressives in Pennsylvania to in favor of writing a very, very democratic constitution for the new state of Pennsylvania. It was unlike any other. The, the, unlike, the, it was basically unlike any other, right, the, essentially unlike any other. I mean, it, it really was a far more progressive document. And he really wanted to ensure the fact that it wouldn't only be property holders who could vote. He wanted to make sure that ordinary farmers and ordinary working people could have a voice in government. So these are the kind of things he did in the course of the war, but he always was committed to the, to the American Revolution as a whole. 
And among the people that he befriended, and he was still friendly with the likes of Franklin, and, 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 and he became friends with Jefferson and others, what happens is that uh, there was one young man who was commissioned to go to France to raise more monies, okay? I believe Franklin is already back over there. And Payne accompanies him on this mission. Strangely enough, by the time they accomplish their mission, the war ends. But in the, in the voyage from Philadelphia to Europe, they get attacked and Payne is, reportedly serves as a real swordsman in fighting the enemies, the, the, you know, the enemy uh, sailors. So he was I always saw that dedicated. in your book that he actually got into a sword fight. Right, that's in right. Route. So, yeah. but this is uh, after 1781. After right. the, this, is, uh, right. this is around 1781, right, right in there. So he goes before the uh, April 21st uh, signing uh, of the Treaty of Paris. I don't remember if he's specifically there. He's already on his way back here. Because remember, that's 1783. He's back by then. He's, he's already back. back. The war ends in 1781. The treaty is until 1783. I see. So he's but back. Not, but at the end of the revolution, Payne has to figure out how he's going to make a living. Right. Well, what did he do? I mean, he, by the way, he did give $500 of his own money. Uh, for the uh, Continental Army, I believe. Oh, he, he never even took royalties from anything he wrote. Not even, not even writes a man or... Uh, well, wait, that's later. That's right. a later. That's up later. We're talking the about the revolution. He took no royalties. Common sense, he could have made a hell of a lot of money, I would expect, well, in those days. But indeed, he said all of the royalties from common sense, if you can collect them, should be used to buy mittens for Washington's troops. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so, yeah. But, but he, did, he wasn't a man of great means. But in, in, in your book here, uh, which we're going to hold up right here, is uh, there's a story in there about how he tried to get others to finance, others to put money into it, landowners. Uh, he, also wrote, he also wrote a pamphlet calling on, like, Rhode Island was hesitant about giving money. A lot of the members, they didn't have to give money, the, the states. This was something that they were told they should do, but they could resist the idea of paying their fair taxes to the American government. And Payne would write pamphlets chastising people for, you know, for those states that had failed to pay their monies. Remember, they're operating under something called the Articles of Confederation. I'll give you another example of his commitment. So the Articles of Confederation really took years to formally accept. And so, so they're operating it with a kind of gentleman's agreement that they're in effect. One of the questions that came up in creating the, 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 the unified government was, what are, there are the big states and there are the landlocked states. So you've got Pennsylvania, you got, look, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New York, they could look west, just keeping in mind what I've said before on the, on the other occasion, they could look west and see unbounded opportunities. Yes. But if you're Rhode Island or Connecticut or New Jersey or Delaware, you're landlocked basically from the, to the west. You've got you've got the ocean, but land you're limited. You cannot grow geographically. Virginia had that in mind. They yes, could they all, right. Oh, they all did. North Carolina, Virginia, New York. But here's the so here's the thing. Here's the thing. The question was, what happens to the western lands? Payne wrote a pamphlet called 
the public good or public goods. And Payne said that they should create these a territory, the Northwest Territories. And if any of those territories should, or if any part of them should wish to organize as a state and seek admission to the Union, they would come in as a new state. That the, that the boundaries of the West, on the West of these colonies, now states, should be the boundaries of those states. They could not go West. So th this would allow for new states to, to enter the Union, like Kentucky eventually, and uh, Ohio, and so on. How was that received by uh, Jefferson and uh, the Randolph? Well, I, I, I mean, it may well have been resented by any number of Virginians, but I think that they understood that this was a, this was a way, by the way, of securing the Confederation. It was a way of securing it. And they already had far more land than the likes of New Jersey or Connecticut, Rhode Island, uh, or even Massachusetts for that matter. All right, listen, we're gonna take a, a, a quick uh, break here and, and get to the post-war years up into Paris uh, and uh, in England uh, after the war and what he did uh, to try to scratch out a living right after the, the war was over. So we're gonna take a break right here, uh, Professor, and uh, we're gonna play uh, what we did the other day because I like it so much, uh, Barbara Streisand. Uh, from Pins and Needles. Yeah, I love that song. That is quote. We'll be right back in just one minute. In 1776, Tom Paine was writing books with might and main. The Tories said, now man alive. Stop giving out with this hilliberty jive. Stop giving out with this hilliberty jive. Don't sing up people's rights that way. They might believe in what you say. So stop your song, it's not you start a fight. You told us a story that's uh, from a play called, a uh, Broadway play called Pins and Needles, uh, Barbara Streisand. Uh, now, I want to move to the other side of uh, 1783 and Payne trying to make a living. And he begins by trying to secure some kind of pension. So can yeah, you walk does, through that? He had, Washington tried to secure him a pension from Virginia, I believe and some others too, but there was still an animosity towards Payne for having called for an end of slavery. So there were those in the Virginia, Virginia, what they call it, the House of Burgesses, whatever they called it, that they were not gonna do that. Um, New York State does give him a cottage and lands that had, been, uh, that had been taken from a Tory family, a loyalist family, and some monies do come his way. The Congress offered him an opportunity to become the historian of the revolution and of the United States. He turned it down. Um, he actually wrote a little essay on how American history should be written, which I don't want to get into right here, but um, he turned it down, partly because the salary was so low, it was, it, it, he could never have managed on it, and also because he had other, other things that were occupying his mind. And most importantly, and this is something I really want to mention, Thomas Paine, when he was a boy, was fascinated not only by poetry, you know, Shakespeare and Milton. He was also fascinated by science. 
and technology. And he had this idea that, in fact, during the war, he and Washington would try experiments together, sort of creating new kinds of weapons and things like that. After the war, Payne decided what he wanted to do was he wanted to create an iron bridge. Okay, this was in the, there was no, there were no iron bridges in the United States. They just didn't exist at the time. The bridges that cross rivers like the Schuylkill Skook, and others, and keep in mind, if you look at an American map, it's all rivers that flowing out of the Adirondacks and elsewhere that flow into the Atlantic. And Payne thought if America needed to be united, if you were going to travel from Boston, say, to Charleston, you didn't go by land, you went by boat. But most people aren't going to get on a boat. How can we, how can we cross these rivers without getting on a boat or a ferry? And the bridges that existed were wooden. And in the wintertime, the ice would, would literally destroy the bridges. So Payne had the idea, let's, he's going to invent, not invent, but he's going to develop an iron bridge. And he really does create some very, a very, very interesting plan. He, he, and he impresses the foremost inventor of the day, Benjamin Franklin, his friend. And Franklin says, this is a project that you really must pursue. The problem was that there were no banks worth speaking of. There were sums of money, but no banks. So Payne needed, I mean, there was one bank in, in Philadelphia, basically. Payne needed funds. So Franklin told him, look, maybe this is the opportunity or the time for you to go back to Europe, to London and Paris, and raise money for the Iron Bridge, okay? I mean, this for Payne, this was really important because if you're gonna have a united country, you have to have means of, you have to be able to have people travel. You have to have trade going north and south, and you couldn't depend just on the ocean, just on seas and boats. So he goes, he actually goes in, in 18, sorry, 1787, he, he leaves from Philadelphia and he goes to Europe. Well, wait, 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 wait. I want to go going back to the to the bridge there. He did try to secure money from a bank, and and he wasn't opposed to banks. A lot of the uh, small farmers were, and he got some flack for that. But he had a good explanation. Yeah, he, Payne was like a champion of what we call national development. But instead of like going over, overseas to to create net, net, to help other nations develop, because at this point the only democracy in the making was, was the United States. Payne's idea was to create banks to fund things such as iron bridges, north and south. Now, farmers didn't like the idea because they saw banks as the kind of thing that would, you know, literally rip them off. But the artisan community in places like Philadelphia and Boston and elsewhere, quite at least half the artisans thought it was a good idea because they had ambitions to turn their little enterprises perhaps into larger enterprises. And to do that, they might need capital. So yeah, so I mean, it was a big battle, a very big battle. Some people accuse Payne of turning against the average man, but as far as he was concerned, this was a way of advancing the average man. He was not like Hamilton, who wanted to create a class of merchant capitalists. That's not what he wanted to do. He right. wanted to create a vast class of prospering American artisans and workers. Right. All right, so uh, he doesn't get the funding here and he uh, sails off uh, to Europe or I don't know, did he go to London first or did he go to Paris first? He probably went to London first because he could speak English. Right, so what, what takes place there when he gets to London? Well, first thing to know is that 
over the next couple of years, he's going back and forth, London and Paris. Uh, so, uh, well, Payne at that point was uh, being vilified or being... No, 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 no. You're jumping the gun. You're too eager to jump the gun. Oh, okay. It wasn't okay. then. I didn't, Adams didn't call him an alcoholic. It was later on. All right, yeah, so... You're jumping the gun. He, all right, well, so he gets... the point. He's, he's in London. He's in Paris going back and forth. And he actually is... He actually built like a quarter size model of what would be the bridge. And he actually opened it up as a tourist attraction. People would pay to come in and cross the bridge. It was on land or maybe a creek, but doesn't, who knows? But the point was that even during this time, there were these movements that were developing in England, inspired in part by the American Revolution and, and inspired by the fact that. England is be, is go, entering into its industrial revolution and artisans' livelihoods are, are threatened. I mean, there's it's real ferment in England. And Payne, this is, let's keep in mind, Payne in 1789, the French Revolution erupts and Payne is invited basically to, to come to France to witness what's happening, okay? Right. The Bastille has been, you know, Devis, you know, has been torn down. Lafayette, who had been a, an American officer under Washington, who had come from France to fight with Washington, he actually gives Payne the key to the Bastille as a symbol of the end of, of the, the French, uh, French, you know, oppressive monarchy. They're going to have a constitutional mon monarchy. And he tells Payne, this, this key is for you to take back to the United States and as a gift to Washington. Now, Here's what happens. Edmund Burke, a major conservative figure in parliament, writes a pamphlet attacking the French Revolution. Reflections, on the, on, the Reflections on the Revolution in France. Now, Payne is, is outraged at that, by that pamphlet. Outraged by it. Because by the way, wait a second. How big, uh, how influential was that book by Burke? Well, it was very influential amongst the upper classes. Because keep in mind, if you're if you're a British conservative, or even for that matter, British liberal, and you see a revolution has erupted in France, okay. Not, remember that they, they don't behead the king at this point. The idea was to create a constitutional monarchy. But if you see a revolution commencing in France. Okay, with violent, you know, it's going to be a violent upheaval as far as the British are concerned. This is a threat. This, this, the distance from England to France is pretty, you know, for those of you who know anything about geography, you'll realize it's a very short distance. You right. get on a boat, you're over in, you know, you just cross the, the English Channel in a matter of a certain number of hours. Okay, so, so the, the British, British aristocracy is, you know, this is not a welcome de development and the, the crown you can imagine is outraged. And here's, here's so Burke's pamphlet, Reflections on the Revolution of France, became a, a pretty successful pamphlet, but not with common people necessarily. Payne, and Payne's not the only one who writes in response to Burke. Mary Wollstonecraft, right. sort of the, the, the mother of modern feminism, she writes, in response to Burke, as do others. There's a new, there is actually this sort of developing sort of movement that wants to see reform at the least in England, but then Payne enters the picture. 
and he writes the first of what will be two volumes or two, two heavy, he you know, hefty pamphlets. His piece is called Rights of Man. And he stands on the, on the American Revolution and is basically saying, in America, we have carried out a revolution. We have brought an end to monarchy. We have created a democratic republic. These are the grounds upon which others can stand in favor of bringing an end to the scourge of monarchy, rights of man, okay? Yes. And this pamphlet explodes in its, in, when it, it, you might say, when it, it, it's published. And it becomes, it's translated throughout Europe, it becomes this major pamphlet that literally sets fire to the Atlantic world, you might say, as did common sense in America in its day. And it becomes, it becomes almost like what later in, in, in working class history on the continent is the Communist Manifesto. This is the manifesto of modern revolution. And English working people embrace it. Middle class and working people embrace this. This becomes their manifesto. This, this is the first part there because it's written in two pieces. First part. Right? Right. Yes. So this right. is in 1790, 91? This is probably 1790, 91. The other one's going to come out in 1791 and becomes, made, you know, 1792. It's that kind of separation so, between them. It's two different there, themes. The first one is definitely the sort of celebration of the possibilities of the French Revolution. He's right. comparing the French Revolution to the American Revolution. It, it, he lit, but the English embrace it, English working people embrace it as a pamphlet that speaks to them against the likes of Burke. Burke says, how dare these people try to overturn tradition and order and hierarchy? I mean, how dare they? Whereas Paine is saying, that's all bullshit, okay? I mean, the fact is that, you know, people have, have suffered under this, uh, under monarchy. They've suffered under the aristocracy, and they're trying to create a new, a new world, not unlike the world Americans are trying to create across the Atlantic. All right. Well, you know, I think we're going to end it there with the first half of the um, of uh, the rights of man, uh, because uh, I want to talk a lot about the French Revolution and uh, and stuff afterwards uh, about pain. But I, I want to end it there uh, and uh, continue this discussion uh, in the next couple of days. We uh, we're at an hour here. And it went by so quickly, but is that a good place to... Uh... Yes, it is, because when we return, so people know, we can talk about Payne's being back in England, his, the, the way in which the government is harassing him, the way in which the government really does fear the possibility of an English or British revolution, how rights of man literally sets fire not only in England to working class imaginations, but also in Ireland and in Scotland. So we, we've got a lot to talk about still. Okay, well, that's it. We'll continue with Rights of Man the same way uh, we continued with Common Sense at the uh, top of this show. All right, uh, Professor, I, I really appreciate your time. It's so uh, interesting, uh, engrossing for me. I feel like a student in your class. You must have like students that absolutely adore you because you have such a great manner of communicating. That, that's nice of you to say. I'm sure there are there are those who despise me as well for the grades they get. Who knows? <laughs> uh, it's probably relatives of uh, Edmund Burke. Probably. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna go out again with another version of um, uh, Tom 
Payne's bones. And yes, and by the way, Randy, we'll explain to everyone why Tom Payne's bones is such a thematic in, in this Tom Payne story, but we'll leave that to the end. Okay, yes, we definitely will. Um, so uh, once again, thank you very much, Professor. We'll be right back uh, with some closing remarks. <laughs> Straight into old town pain As running down the road he went He said I can stop right now child King John just after me He tied a rope around my throat And I'm in the liberty tree But I will dance to John Payne's bones Dance to John Payne's bones I will dance on the oldest But I own to the rhythm of John Payne's bones Dance to John Payne's bones Dance to John Payne's bones I will dance on the oldest But I own to the rhythm of John Payne's bones Critical, Randy Critical, live on the flight. You know, this is um, on our website at Assange Countdown to Freedom. You can also get it at Live on the Fly uh, YouTube channel and in many other uh, platforms, including iTunes uh, and um, Podtails and many others. Um, now, we're going to continue our, uh, our programming. We're going to get back into strictly Assange uh, material after this series is over with uh, Mr. Uh, Kay and uh, uh, Tom Payne. Uh, and, but we're, we certainly could use your help. If, if you could uh, give us a little support, you can go to AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Uh, we're just looking to pay the basic expenses here, website, uh, engineer, uh, you know, uh, little things like that, uh, editing, so uh, once again, I, I thank you for listening. We're gonna go out uh, as we have for the last five or six shows um, with uh, Billie Holiday and uh, our memorial to those who've been victimized by uh, some very, very bad people in uh, our police departments across the country. See you next time, very soon. With what has happened the last two centuries, uh, African-Americans gunned down by law enforcement, enslaved, uh, put to work, uh, convict leasing, put in jail with the drug war. But in the last week, it's really heated up and it's got to stop. Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves. And blood at the root Black bodies swinging In the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging From the poplar trees
gallant south The bulging ass And the twisted mouth Scent of magnolia Sweet and fresh Then the sudden smell Of burning flesh Here is a fruit For the crows to pluck For the rain together For the wind to suck Sun to rot for the tree to drop. Here's a strange and bitter. Cur-